Hello, and welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series explores the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which occurs when bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites change over time and no longer respond to antibiotics and other medicines. In other words, they become superbugs. I am Dr. Marnie Peterson, and I've spent the last 25 years focused on this topic, both as an educator and researcher, and I will be your host. In our view, this could either cure him or kill him, and we didn't know what was going to happen. But it was clear that he was going to die if we didn't do something drastic. Defined as an urgent AMR threat by the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the resistant bacteria, Acinetobacter baumannii, causes deadly infections and is difficult to remove from the environment. Acinetobacter is a challenge for hospitalized patients because it frequently contaminates healthcare facility surfaces and shared medical equipment. If not addressed through infection control measures, including rigorous cleaning and disinfection, outbreaks in hospitals and nursing homes can occur. Acinetobacter is already resistant to many antibiotics. In the 2022 Lancet publication on drug-resistant infections, otherwise known as the Graham Report, it was identified as the leading pathogen causing mortality in Southeast Asia. This episode will cover how resistant infections caused by resistant acinetobacter impact healthcare systems and how new types of therapies are on the horizon to improve treatment of these infections. I'm Stephanie Strathy. I'm the Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences at the University of California, San Diego, where I'm also a distinguished professor. And Stephanie, can you just describe to us how you first became interested and passionate about infectious disease, which ultimately became your career? Well, back in the 1980s, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto, and I was studying microbiology, and I was very interested in the topic, but it hit me on a personal note when one of our professors handed out our exams one day and never came back. He actually died of pneumocystis crinii pneumonia, which was associated with HIV, which didn't even have a name back then. Um, I was really shocked by that, and I realized that we were facing what was to become a pandemic, and that I was somebody who could hopefully make a difference. So as you know, this is all focused on multidrug-resistant organisms, but this became personal to you through your husband, and he became infected with a multidrug-resistant bacteria called Acinetobacter baumannii. What did you know about the organism before this, and were you really tracking antimicrobial resistance and its impact before that? Well, ironically, this was an organism that I used to plate on my Petri dishes when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto. It was considered to be a really wimpy organism back then. Um, All we needed were gloves and a lab coat, and, you know, we would plate it on um, sheep's blood agar and watch the little colonies grow. And, you know, I just thought of it as any other kind of organism. But when my husband was diagnosed with an abomaniae infection, and it turned out to be multidrug resistant, I thought, wow, like how could an organism like this that used to be so wimpy end up being what is now one of the number one leading causes of bacterial, you know, threats to humankind in just, you know, 30 years or so. Um, It was a shock. I mean, I'd been tracking antimicrobial resistance as an infectious disease epidemiologist, but I guess I just thought that even though the antibiotic pipeline is dwindling, 
that medicine would just come up with more solutions, that there would be another antibiotic around the corner and that we would be able to dig ourselves out of this, this looming crisis. It never occurred to me that an infection that somebody who was, was seemingly healthy could acquire on vacation could end up almost killing you. And let's talk a little bit more about the personal story that you've described and, and published in your book, The Perfect Predator. What challenges did you first experience with his diagnosis being infected with a multidrug resistant bacteria? Well, the way uh, my husband's infection materialized was very sudden. It was after a meal on top of a cruise ship on the Nile outside of Luxor, and he just got violently ill and ended up in a clinic there. Uh, because there was no hospital, and they diagnosed pancreatitis, and they helped stabilize him, and he was medevaced then to Germany. And in Germany, it was discovered they he had a giant abscess in his abdomen that had been there for quite some time, and it made a nice little apartment for Acinetobacter bomanii to move into. So it took them a couple of days to culture that, and that's you know one of the first issues that is facing anybody with a multidrug resistant infection is that. First, they have to figure out, okay, well, what is it? And that could take some time. And then how resistant is it? So that's done with an antibiotic susceptibility profile called an antibiogram. So that took even a few more days. A lot of hospitals, even in the US, don't have that the kind of resources that are necessary to, to generate an antibiogram. He'd probably been in the hospital a good 10 days by the time the antibiogram came back. And I remember holding it and looking at this sheet um, and even though I didn't understand German, like it was a chart with 15 different antibiotic names on it, and it was R, 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 all the way down, and it was only partially sensitive to three different antibiotics. And those, in our book, I call them corillacillins because they're the heavy-duty antibiotics that are only available by infusion, so intravenous. And they have very heavy side effects. Um, one of them, colistin, is the last resort antibiotic that was developed in World War II and is nephrotoxic. So it's very damaging to the kidneys. But anyway, they put him on a cocktail of those antibiotics right away and hoped that he could pull through. He, they stabilized him and then they sent him back to San Diego where um, we live. And now he was being cared for by my friends, my colleagues in the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. So I thought everything was going to be fine. Yeah. How do you, you know, emotionally, how do you deal with the one side of your brain that's the expert academic professor understanding all the information that's coming at you and the emotional side of your husband's very critically ill? So you're trying to think through solutions at the same time, managing something that's, you know, critical and emotional and scary. Absolutely. Um, it was obviously the worst ordeal I've ever been through. My husband ended up being in the hospital for nine months. You know, every turn I thought, okay, he's going to pull through and we're going to get him home. Like looking back, I just laugh at how naive I was. Um, certainly he was critically ill, but I still thought that modern medicine was going to pull something out of their hat and save him. And that wasn't obviously the case. So I was kind of very much polarized. I would go and I would be the wife me I'm holding my husband's hand, and then I would be the scientist, me thinking, okay, what can we do to get out of this? There has to be a way. And so the good news is that UC San Diego is, is a teaching hospital, and they are open to cutting-edge therapeutic strategies. And the first one that we used on Tom when we found out that his organism was now pan-resistant, it had actually acquired even more 
antimicrobial resistance just in the few weeks that he was in Germany and medevaced back to San Diego. A colleague of mine, Dr. Victor Nizé, his lab had worked on three different antibiotics um, used in vitro to try to get colistin into the cell. And so um, it was a combination, if I recall correctly, of rifampin and azithromycin and colistin. And the azithromycin weakened the bacterial cell wall and allowed the colistin to get in. And that idea to, to use that approach came from my colleague and, and friend, Davy Smith. And so when I saw that even my colleagues were reaching for, you know, textbooks and turning to PubMed for ideas, um, that gave me the confidence um, when we ran out of our last options and it looked like Tom was going to die to try to find something on my own. And, and luckily, I was able to do that. How did you come to the concept that one of our treatments of last resort is phage therapy? You'll need to describe a little bit to our listeners what phage therapy is, but how did that concept come to fruition where you were at with treatment? Like you said, there wasn't very many options left. Right. Tom um, had been in the hospital at this point around four months, and uh, the doctors met with me and his daughters and said, you know, this isn't looking good. We don't think he's going to make it. We need your permission if you want to extend his life with kidney dialysis. And he was already on uh, a ventilator, and he and so his lungs were failing. He was already on three different medications called pressors to keep his heart pumping. And so now it was the trifecta, you know, um, kidneys. And so um, one of the doctors explained to me, you know, we stop talking about organs, and when this kind of thing happens, we and we start talking about organ systems. And so it's like a, a car, right? When one thing goes, the other thing starts to go, and it's like, oh man! At first, it's a distributor, then it's a carburetor, then oh, it, also, it breaks, and it's like, well, might as well just pack the whole thing in. Well, you know, Tom was not a car; <laughs> he was my husband, and I wanted to grow old with him. And by that time, I had had started doing some research on my own, and I had had stumbled literally across this paper that had alternative treatments for acinetobacter bomanii um, that was multidrug resistant. And one of them was, was bacteriophage therapy or phage therapy for short. I didn't know if we could do something like this, but I did tell the doctors, let's put them on dialysis if you have to. And I had this conversation with Tom. It was just the most horrible thing you've ever had to go through where, you know, he was in a coma and I didn't know if he could hear me, but I asked him if he wanted to live. And if he did, to squeeze my hand and that I would leave no stone unturned. And I waited. And after about a minute, he squeezed my hand really hard. And I got really excited. And my little glove, you know, fist pumped it in the air and thought, okay, this is great. And then I thought, oh, crap. Like, you know, I'm not a medical doctor. I am an epidemiologist, but I, I just know enough about medicine to get me into trouble most of the time. But uh, after Tom squeezed my hand, I went home and I did what anybody would do. I hit the internet and the National Library of Medicine, which is part of the National Institute of Health, and up pops uh, papers that have been uh, peer-reviewed in the scientific literature. And uh, one of them is, is the one that mentioned phage therapy. So I knew that phages were viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria, but I never knew that these phages had ever been used to treat bacterial infections in, in people or in animals until I read this paper. And I thought, wow, like, this is great. Where can I get my hands on some of this phage? 
Well, I did a little bit more digging and realized that this was considered experimental treatment in the U.S., and that was a big mystery because phages had been discovered over 100 years ago by a French-Canadian self-taught microbiologist called Felix de Harel, and um, he used phage successfully to cure dysentery in children uh, in Paris during an outbreak in 1919. So, you know, when my husband was sick, this is uh, 2016 by the time I was stumbling on this paper. And I thought, like, why if this was discovered so many years ago and it worked, isn't it available? Well, it turns out this was before penicillin had been discovered. It was around the time that World War II was brewing and phage therapy became um, adopted as standard of care in what is now the former Soviet Union. Um, unfortunately, though, in the West, that gave it the reputation of being Soviet science. It's clearly biased, a real geopolitical bias. This is medicine that's you know, done by the enemy. And, and also, the science back in those days wasn't very good either. Um, we didn't realize that phage are very specific you know, a certain phage attacks a certain bacterium. It isn't just that there's a universal phage. And so you have to find the perfect predator, as it were, um, to kill the bacteria that is causing the problem. And so once my colleague Chip Schooley, who was the head of infectious diseases, gave the green light to try to find some phage to treat Tom, we began what became a global phage hunt. And I know it was a race against the clock. And you're working with your colleagues and your experts to find phage that could attack the bacteria that was causing problem and infecting him. And you were able to do that. What's ironic is that um, we never had to put him on dialysis. We found phage oh, yeah. so quickly. And it, yeah, it was within my first email to total strangers to the day that we administered phage therapy was only three weeks so compare that to a new antibiotic that takes 10 to 15 years to develop a billion dollars or more as a price tag. I mean, there's no comparison. So that was what blew everybody's mind. Many of these phage were directly sourced from sewage and barnyard waste and the bilges of ships. It's crazy to think of that. But if you think about where penicillin came from, it, it came from a mold, right? And a green mold, fuzzy mold on a Petri dish. So when you take a pill of penicillin or any antibiotic for that matter, it looks all neat and, you know, shiny and everything, but you don't realize that, you know, nature is kind of ugly sometimes. <laughs> but in this case, it was beautiful because it really did work. So talk about Tom receiving his first dose and, and what happened, how you felt at that moment. First, we took those uh, phages and, and administered them into the catheters in his abdomen because that was the closest to the source of the infection. When no adverse effects occurred, he said, okay, well, the Navy's phage cocktail is even more virulent, which is good, um, and um, we're going to put those in intravenously. And I remember the day that he asked me if I would be okay with that, and I kind of knew it was coming because... By that time, Tom was fully colonized. It was a systemic infection, which meant it was out, not outside of the abscess. It had gone into his bloodstream and, you know, into his sputum. It was everywhere. So the idea was as if there was a hidden reservoir of bacteria that the phage didn't reach because we were too timid and just putting them into the tubes in his abdomen, that the bacteria could become resistant to the phage very quickly. So going intravenous meant that the, the viruses of the, the phage could reach their intended targets wherever they were. 
But we were injecting him with a billion phages per dose every two hours. I mean, that's just a stunning amount of viruses. Um, and we didn't know if his body would respond with septic shock. And he'd already had six cases of septic shock by that time. And in our view, this could either cure him or kill him. And we didn't know what was going to happen. But it was clear that he was going to die if we didn't do something drastic. It was terrifying. The worst part of it was knowing that, you know, Tom's daughters are my stepdaughters, that they were trusting me with this decision. And if he died, I would have the burden, the weight of that decision on my shoulders for the rest of my life. And that was the part that really hurt the most. And and also I was just trusting that Tom would want me to make this decision, even though he squeezed my hand, that had been three weeks before and he wasn't squeezing anybody's hand anymore. He was literally, you know, hanging on by a thread. I think it's important for the listeners to know how Tom recovered. And then where's Tom today? How's his life? Well, three days after we administered the Navy phages, Tom, like who had literally been within hours of dying, he was in multi-system organ failure is the clinical term. But despite that, he lifted his head off the pillow, opened his eyes and kissed his daughter's hand. And everyone in the ICU freaked out. Nobody could believe that. It was just a miraculous turnaround. It was not um, a, you know, a linear course to recovery. There was a lot of bumps in the road, but it's clear that the phage made a difference. We continued administering phage for a month. Um, along the way, we realized, though, that, that the first um, phage cocktails actually had very similar phage. They were not really different from one another. We didn't have time to, to sequence them to determine which receptor they were hitting or anything like that. We try to do that these days. But um, at the time, you know, we, we didn't have, you know, the luxury of time. The phage actually became less useful over time because resistance did emerge. But the Navy uh, was able to go back to their phage library and source new phage that matched the bacterial mutants that arose um, in response to the phage cocktail. So, so Tom did recover. He cleared his infection within three months. So after we stopped the phage therapy, his immune system was able to kick in and he battled the, the rest of the infection on his own. And he got out of the hospital nine months after he went in, he'd been fully deconditioned, right? He had lost a hundred pounds all of his muscle mass. It was stunning the the amount of recovery and rehab he needed to undergo. I hand, hand it to him, the resilience to be able to live through something as, as terrible as that, but also it takes so much effort to recover from, from something that is as life-threatening and, and debilitating as it was. But, you know, now we're almost actually um, two days from now, he'll have been out of the hospital um, six years ago. You know, he's just come back from a three-mile hike. He does that every day. Um, we're traveling again when we're not facing yet another pandemic. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're just blessed because every day is a gift and we don't take it for granted. Certainly, this experience had an additive effect to your career. And you've gotten engaged in a new center as its co-director. Where did you become focused after this? Well, it certainly wasn't intentional, but um, when Tom's case um, went viral but in a good way, um, people from all over the world started calling me and also Dr. Schooley about how they could get phage therapy too. 
because total strangers had stepped up to the plate to save my husband's life, I realized how privileged we were and I wasn't going to turn them away. So I turned to the same groups of people that helped in my husband's case. And by then we found even new partners um, at different universities and companies that had formed that sometimes help us with uh, compassionate use cases. And we started saving people's lives and limbs, like quite literally. Um, Some we didn't reach in time. And that was very difficult, but we had enough success that the chancellor at UC San Diego gave us seed funding to start the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, or IPAP. And that is the first dedicated phage therapy center in North America. And since then, Baylor University, the Mayo Clinic, and uh, Yale University all have phage therapy programs as well. Um, We don't think that phage is ever going to replace antibiotics, but it's an important complement to antibiotics. And now the clinical trials that hadn't been done in the past um, because phage therapy had been forgotten in the West, those trials are getting done. I'm Greg Merrill. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Adaptive Phage Therapeutics. Greg, thanks for speaking with me today. Can you explain a little bit to our listeners how you became interested in taking the plunge into infectious diseases? Adaptive Phage Therapeutics, it's a really interesting story. My father started doing research at NIH in the 1960s on bacteriophage. It really boiled down to the narrow host range of a bacteriophage. And historically, they really hadn't figured out how to overcome that narrow host range. And my father thought, uh, why don't we just build a large collection of phage that each have a different host range, and then you could match the patient's infection to one of those phage. And he's kind of developed those ideas, and he published them in Nature. And a, a biodefense lab picked up that research because they were trying to respond to Acinobacter bumani infections that soldiers were coming back f- from Iraq with these infections. And the biodefense program is trying to come up with a solution, an alternative to the antibiotics that weren't working. The biodefense lab uh, was contacted by Stephanie Strathy to provide this phage therapy uh, to treat her husband, Tom Patterson. And my father was involved in trying to come up with the strategy for, for providing that phage. And when that case was, was successful, and there were su- subsequent cases that were successful with that biodefense lab's help, my father asked if I would help him try to advance this approach and, and make it more broadly available. And that was, that was my first introduction to, to, this, uh, to this business and, and to the, the tremendous unmet need of treating infections that have become resistant to antibiotics. You mentioned that it was very, very bacterial specific, host specific for the phage. A particular phage can only, in general, target a specific bacteria that's got a specific receptor. So how are you approaching that from adaptive phage therapeutics? Well, historically, you know, phage had been tried in the treatment of bacterial infections, you know, starting over a hundred years ago. And, and what they found was that particular strains of phage would only cover particular strains of bacteria. And so they were trying to figure out how to overcome that narrow host range of the phage. And one of the approaches was to, well, let's just take phage with different host ranges and put them together into a cocktail. And then you'd have a, a broader spectrum of coverage for that, for that drug product. 
but you still were, were pretty limited and the bacteria are constantly evolving resistance. That's why we're in this crisis because bacteria are constantly evolving resistance to whatever environmental pressures we put on them. So what we're doing at Adaptive Phage Therapeutics is we're leveraging the great diversity of phage there are on earth and trying to collect a broad spectrum of phage that cover the, you know, the complete spectrum of bacteria that are out there. And then we use a, an assay, a sort of companion diagnostic to that collection of phage. And we're able to take bacteria from a patient and run this assay, this phage susceptibility test and figure out which phage within that big library that has hundreds of phage in it, which phage is shown in that test to be able to eradicate that particular bacteria that's making that patient sick. In that way, we're able to, to provide an effective therapy. So it's, it's a little uh, maybe unusual in that we know before we even give the patient their phage that it's effective at killing the patient's bacteria, at least in, in vitro. The thing that's different from this, from anything that's ever been done in the history of development of antimicrobials, is that we're able to continually add new phage to that collection over time. So that if, if we find a bacteria that's not sensitive to one of the phage in our collection, we can use that bacteria to do additional phage hunting and then add the phage that, that is able to kill that bacteria to the collection and therefore increase the spectrum of coverage. So over time, the coverage range of our phage collection is getting larger. And historically, antimicrobials have always been at their strongest when they're first introduced into the market. And after that, they get less effective because they're, the bacteria starts becoming resistant. So that's, that's the thing that's, that excites me about, about what we're doing is that we're building an ever-expanding library of phage that's able to cover increasingly more and more bacteria. Currently, approximately, how, how large is your phage library? We have thousands of phage in our current library. We're focused on the escape pathogens. That's the list of bacteria that the CDC has found to be the you know, most troublesome in terms of their uh, antibiotic sensitivity. So we're, we've been primarily focused on those. Um, the abumani is certainly one of, one of the pathogens that we're focused on. We're focused on Staph aureus, we're focused on Pseudomonas, and, and, and the other escape pathogens. Antibiotics are a really important tool in infectious diseases, but phage therapy is really adding on some important features that antibiotics can't perform. What are some of the unique advantages of phage therapy? Some of the big differences between, and there are significant differences between antibiotics and phage. Well, you know, one of the differences is certainly the phage's ability to replicate. And so Phage are able to dose themselves at the site of infection. And when there are infections where there's limited circulation in areas like in, like in joints, like where people have diabetes, in areas where there's biofilms in particular, because antibiotics really are, have not been good at getting into infections that have biofilms. And most chronic infections do have biofilms. And infections of, of implanted devices often have biofilms. But phage have evolved over 4 billion years to overcome many of the defense mechanisms of bacteria, including biofilms. And so I think it's very promising that phage are able to overcome biofilms, they're able to replicate at the site of the infection, and very importantly, they're very targeted. So a lot of the problems we have in antibiotics are associated with the off-target effects, 
where you're killing healthy bacteria, which can lead to C. difficile infections. Antibiotics are often toxic and they're bad for your kidneys and your liver and other organs. And so we really, if, if we can have an alternative that's very specific in killing the bad guys and leaving the good guys intact and not having collateral damage in the other tissues, that's, that's one of the promises of phage therapy. As like you said, this is in development and will be in development for quite a long period of time, but ultimately it would be something that you would envision could become available at the hospitals. So, so, so one of the exciting things that happened with adaptive phage therapeutics is that we were able to provide phage therapy on a compassionate and you know, emergency basis for a patient at the Mayo Clinic who was suffering from a chronic prosthetic joint infection. So he um, he had had his knee replaced and the his knee joint had become infected. And so he, he had surgery to debreed and, and try to get rid of the infection. But the infection remained and they operated on him again and again and again. And over 11 years, he'd had 17 surgeries to try to eradicate this infection and the infection would not go away. And so... Um, you know, they, they found out about the phage therapy and asked us if we could provide uh, the, some phage on this you know, emergency basis. And we provided phage that matched his infection and they provided it through an IV infusion. And within 48 hours, there was no sign of infection after, you know, after 11 years of struggling. And at the time, his leg was all red and swollen. He had no range of motion, incredible pain. They, were, they had scheduled him to amputate his leg. And, you know, within 48 hours after the phage infusion, there was no sign of infection. So it was such a, a big breakthrough that the, the physicians and the administrative staff at the Mayo Clinic reached out to us and they, they invested in the company. They said, this is going to revolutionize the way we deal with these infections. How can we get involved? And they invested, but maybe even more significantly, they have a large diagnostic testing lab at the Mayo Clinic called the Mayo Clinic Laboratories. They're, they're one of the largest diagnostic testing labs in the United States. They have a, a global reach. And they said, look, why don't we help you translate your phage susceptibility test into something that we can offer right here out of Mayo Clinic Laboratories on a commercial global scale. And so that's what we're doing. We're working with them now to, to introduce that as, as an LDT or lab developed test that they offer as a service out of the Mayo Clinic. So when we get FDA approval, that will be how initially people will be able to get their um, the phage matched to their infections. But that's we see is just the first step. Eventually, you know, we do imagine that every hospital will have phage susceptibility testing in the same way that hospitals currently provide antibiotic susceptibility testing. We definitely see this as an iterative step where it starts off in one testing lab, then gets expanded into other labs, and, and so on. There's obviously a lot of challenge and risk associated with developing of new therapeutics. Do you feel that with the phage therapy, some of the challenges, and you're obviously working with the regulatory, the FDA process here, that your timeline is similar? Developing phage as a therapeutic has challenges, but also there, there are some things which make developing phage therapy actually maybe faster than other drug development. One thing is that the FDA has seen safety data over the past hundred years and has a good understanding that the phage is generally safe. And so 
they've encouraged us to not look at just safety with our studies and to, to be looking at for efficacy signals from the very beginning with our study designs. So I think that greatly accelerates the timeline for development. And for us, you know, at Adaptive Phage Therapeutics, because we have this phage library approach and we're able to add phage to the collection, if you think about traditional antibiotic development, where when there's a bacteria that's not covered by the existing antibiotics, the pharmaceutical industry, what they do is they'll, they'll do molecule discovery activities where they try to find a, a small molecule that will kill that bacteria and that activity can take a year or so at fastest. And then when they find something that looks promising, they'll do animal studies. So some preclinical work to see if, if it'll work in an in vivo model. And if that looks good, then they can move on to phase one clinical trials, which take a couple of years, and then phase two, and then phase three. And that whole effort takes at fastest a decade to cover a new bacteria that wasn't covered by previous antibiotics. Where you think about our process, when we find a bacteria that's not covered, it takes a couple of weeks for us to find in a new phage. We do sequencing and we provide the annotation data to the FDA through a process. We then manufacture. We send the, the analysis of the manufacturing, send that data to the FDA, and then we add the phage to our collection. That whole process takes about 120 days. So you're really talking about a process here that takes weeks or a few months versus a traditional process, which takes over a decade. And I think that's a huge revolution in, the, in, the, in timeline. That's the kind of speed that's going to change the entire landscape of how you deal with infectious disease. Looking back over the past, I guess it's been about seven years since you've co-founded the company, what's something that you, you wish you would have known at the start that you know now? But what I didn't know was just how much of the ugly stepchild antibiotics are within the pharmaceutical industry. I stumbled upon this opportunity because the, the big pharmaceutical companies were not interested in phage therapy. In fact, they weren't even interested in their own antibiotic portfolios. Most of the big pharmaceutical companies had been divesting of their antibiotics. I guess now I, I feel like I understand why that's the case. It certainly has provided challenges for bringing in investors. Yeah. The, the investment community it generally has lost money in antibiotics, although everyone agrees we need antibiotics. We need antibiotics to treat infectious disease, but we also need them to do modern surgery. You can't do surgery without having prophylactic antibiotics. You can't treat cancer unless you have antibiotics. So we need them commercially. They've been a, a disaster for the pharmaceutical industry. But I've come to understand that the reason that's been a disaster is just this biological process of the emergence of resistance. Bacteria emerges resistance. It's just a fact. And that has decreased the time for return on investment from the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, it's also exciting understanding that, that we present a solution. It's a very basic problem, the problem of, of emerging resistance. We provide a solution because we have an adaptive expanding phage collection that is able to rapidly overcome emerging resistance. I, I want to ask about developmental challenges with designing and developing phage as a, as a therapeutic versus a traditional antibiotic. Certainly conceptually, one of the biggest challenges is that narrower host range of the phage. So that, that led to this, this idea of, well, you need to have this large library 
in order to make sure that you're not just covering the bacterial infections we see today, but also into the future. And so coming up with that, with that strategy. And then also figuring out in collaboration with the FDA is how are we going to regulate this? Of course, that's, that's an ongoing question because we're just now in, in phase two clinical trials, but, um, the, but the FDA has been incredibly supportive and they allow us to add phage to our collection, uh, on an ongoing basis. And, and we use, you know, some processes that the, the vaccine group at the FDA had, had developed in the way that they regulate vaccines to allow us to, to do that. I think at the core, that's going to be a big key because the ability to add phage to the collection is what's going to allow us to adapt our phage bank to what is known the, the bacteria will evolve resistance. So we'll keep ahead of that emerging resistance by being able to add phage to the collection. So there've been quite a few challenges, regulatory challenges, manufacturing challenges, just overall business strategy challenges. And I'm sure and probably the biggest one that I haven't even mentioned is how do you figure out which phage to use on a, a for a particular patient and developing that phage susceptibility test. Um, a lot of that work uh, had been done at the uh, the Biological Defense Research Directorate of the U.S. Navy, and, and we acquired that technology through a, a licensing agreement. But I think what most of us who are really close to this acknowledge is that what we have now is um, is able to match the phage to the bacteria in a, in a planktonic state, but we're, we need to be more sophisticated. And the more sophisticated we get, the more precision we're going to be with our providing of therapy. I think at this point, we're able to add significant value to the patients, but over time, it's just going to get better and better and better. And I think that the, the ultimate optimization of that process is going to happen well beyond my lifetime. I, mean, I think it's going to be something that we're going to be learning about for years and years to come. Have you ever had a bacteria that within your phage library, you couldn't find one that had effectiveness? One of the really exciting things over the past five years has been when, when we first started, we acquired the library of phage from the Navy and it had pretty good coverage, but we would find bacteria occasionally that was not covered. And so what's been happening over the last few years is that we've built our own phage hunting activities. We've collaborated with the Army's phage lab. We've collaborated with other academic phage researchers and, and licensed their phage collections. And today, I would challenge anyone in the infectious disease community to send us a bacteria that's not covered within the escape pathogens. And I would guarantee that we either have a phage that right now that will kill that bacteria, or within 120 days, we will be able to find a phage that covers that bacteria 100%. It's amazing. Hello, my name is Jason Bennett. I'm a colonel in the U.S. Army. Uh, I'm an infectious disease physician. And I am also the director of the MRSN, which is the acronym for the Multidrug Resistant Organism Repository and Surveillance Network. And we basically track superbugs across the military healthcare system and look for outbreaks or for trends in um, emerging antibiotic resistance. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Patrick McGann. I have a PhD in microbiology, and I am the deputy director of the MRSN. As you mentioned, you both work uh, within Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, um, and that's the perspective we want to hear from you today. 
uh, with the important role of tracking multidrug resistant bacteria and understanding their spread and surveillance. Can you just start off by giving us a, the listeners a little bit of context within the military as to why you are concerned about multidrug resistant Acinetobacter? Acinetobacter baumannii in particular is a variety of different species of Acinetobacter, but baumannii has always been on the radar of the U.S. military, at least for the last 20 years. Um, so beginning with the war in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, one of the first things that was noticed really within weeks of the first injuries um, was this organism called Acinetobacter, which, you know, at the time was very rare. I've heard it being said, you know, that some of the, the doctors were unable to pronounce it because they'd never heard it before. But very quickly, it entered into the military healthcare system, probably around April, March, April of 2003, just after the commencement of the invasion of Iraq. And very quickly, within a week or two, there was 18 cases here in Washington, D.C. at Walter Reed. So from there, it just spread. And over the succeeding six, seven years, it was probably the organism that we most isolated from wound cultures and blood cultures at the hospitals from injured soldiers. At the height of it in 2006, 2007, there was probably two to three new infections every single day um, at the hospitals here. And there was clear cases of the bacteria just spreading among patients within wards. And um, the problem with the Acinetobacter, of course, is that it's intrinsically resistant to many antibiotics. So you only had a couple of antibiotics left that you could use to treat it. And um, as we've shown in our research, those bugs quickly developed resistance to even those antibiotics so that by by 2011 pretty much all of the all of the acinetobacter that we were seeing were resistant to the vast majority of antibiotics that we had available to treat for them there's a direct correlation almost like uh, we actually plotted a, a regression on the correlation between combat injuries and acinetobacter infections, and it's an almost one-for-one. So the more combat infections you had, the more acinetobacter appeared. As we've not seen since the um, the end of the Iraq war, really the end of major combat operations in 2011, you've seen a concomitant decrease, dramatic drop-off in the number of acinetobacter baumannii that we see in our hospitals. It does appear every now and again, but it's not as common as it was 10, 15 years ago. Uh, what we do see, however, is when you start seeing some sort of calamity, like uh, earthquakes or you know, COVID was an example, where you had a lot of patients being treated together in one room or one ward, that's where we saw acinetobacter reappear. When the organism was first emerging, uh, and you said cases that was really quickly to appear at the hospital in Washington, how did you approach it with, with, from a surveillance perspective? Were you identifying it in the field as well? Like, so if you were st trying to stop the chain of, of transmission of the organism? Some of the infectious disease docs who were deployed to combat support hospitals in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, individually they would go, and because they were aware that acinetobacter was a problem, they would set up small projects where they would swab different sites in the cache, you know, in the, in the operating rooms, surgical suites that were that were in the combat support hospitals, looking for it. Um, they also, I think, at some point, they were collecting soil samples to see if it was in the soil. But I don't think that there was, to my knowledge, there was no kind of comprehensive 
project that went back and tried to isolate it, you know, along the routes of evacuation. When the, the military system would pick it up, when patients were admitted to Launchstuhl in Germany, they had a wound culture or something done there, or probably not consistently at the beginning of combat, but definitely standard operating procedures evolved over time where anyone who was admitted to the hospital in Germany, if it was a medical evacuation, they were getting screening samples done to try to identify even people who were just colonized and so kind of carrying it with them, but not necessarily infected by the bug. And so that developed over time, but early on, you know, I think it was probably a pretty chaotic situation and there was no real capability to, to go look for it proactively. Well, you know, we're talking back into the early 2000s yeah. and technology is nowhere near as robust or the infrastructure as it is today. So in all honesty, there was very little surveillance going on. They were using a technology called pulsed field gel electrophoresis, PFE. Um, it's quite subjective, unfortunately. It also doesn't really allow you to... You can tell that organisms are related, but you can't t- tell any directionality or, you know, is it that you've got that from the next person beside you or that you got it from the environment or you got it from someplace upstream, like maybe in, in a combat sport hospital in Iraq. And of course, all this work was being done retrospectively at the hospital labs after they had, you know, when they had time to actually do that sort of work. So for the most part, surveillance was not very robust back then. So there's a lot of cases going on, but I guess the technology at the time was not really conducive to being able to, you know, unearth exactly where these infections were coming from or how it was spreading. The strains you were identifying out of the wounds were multidrug resistant. And how did that complicate treatment? And did that multidrug resistance that these organisms have affect the morbidity and mortality as well with this infection? Yeah, so early on, one of the few kind of, I guess, safest antibiotics was unfortunately uh, the carbapenems, which are very broad spectrum. Uh, but that was one of the few that you could actually use that would kill the acinetobacters early. And unfortunately, because the, that's the one we had to use that was, again, the safest, you know, least likely to have kidney damage or any other kind of toxicities in the patients, the, the organisms developed resistance over time to the carbapenems. And so by the time I was an, an ID fellow in the Army Medical Center, really we couldn't even use any penem or meropenem at that point. We were using things like colistin or tigacycline eventually came, but there really were not very many um, good options for some of the bacteria that, that were cultured kind of in those later years once the, the bacteria in general had just become more resistant to the carbapenems. In terms of mortality, I think it's pretty well documented in the literature that those carbapenem-resistant strains or these multidrug-resistant strains are, are going to result in higher mortality, most likely just because you're not on appropriate therapy earlier on when you could you know, kind of control the infection a little bit better. And, I mean, there are a lot of studies looking at different um, risk factors and that kind of stuff. Definitely higher mortality associated with multi-drug-resistant bacteria in general and obviously acinetobacter too. Are there any differences when you're treating military personnel in a military hospital versus uh, in a private or civilians? Not Definitely not in terms of treating patients. There would be you know, standards of care apply across the board. Based on the military's experience, we may do a better job at screening people when they're admitted. Um, just like I said, we we see a lot of patients who are service members who were injured or ill overseas, and they get admitted to a foreign national hospital or a local national hospital. 
for a brief period of time. And just because we've learned our lesson, as soon as that patient gets back into the military healthcare system track and they're being evacuated from wherever they're at, they will get screened to look for these kind of uh, multi-drug resistant bacteria or methicillin resistant Staph aureus or vancomycin resistant enterococcus. There's, I mean, now we have SOPs like every single person who gets admitted to you know, key hospitals to get into the evacuation chain. They're going to get screened so that we can just keep the, them on proper infection control precautions as they move through. And I don't know that civilian hospitals, because they have any, you know, I don't think they have the same exposure risk to introducing these kind of bugs into their facilities maybe that we do. Probably in some parts of the U.S. they do. But I think that's one thing that the military has learned a lesson on and does better now. And that's perhaps, you know, Patrick was saying, we don't see much as Nidobacter in, in our healthcare system anymore. And that's probably why we just we're able to isolate it down to a single patient and then it doesn't spread. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. The overall impact lessons learned from S. Nidobacter pneumoniae, multi-drug resistant infections coming in through these soldiers from these combat zones. So we've been fortunate as well as doing surveillance across the military healthcare system. We also work with the Global Emerging Infectious Surveillance Branch at the Armed Forces Health Surveillance Branch, AFHSB, or they fund us to um, collect bacteria from around the world. So we're able to uh, really construct this global picture, allowing us to examine the percentage of bacteria that are multidrug resistant in each of these various countries and locations, regions, and then compare that back to what we see here in the United States. It also allows us to very quickly identify if, if an organism appears in one of our hospitals, we can very quickly say, oh, this is most closely related to isolates from Asia or from South America or or places like that. So we've definitely, the lessons we've learned from that is that the rates of multi-drug resistance are way, way higher uh, overseas than they are here in the U.S. So with some exceptions, of course, Northern Europe is still pretty, their rates are pretty low, but Southern Europe, in contrast, is quite high rates. Asia, South America, unfortunately, very, very high rates of multi-drug resistance. So we've had a lot of, quite a few cases, even in the last few months of uh, service members that have been injured overseas or accidents or whatever and being treated at the local hospital, they come back here and they have a, what's now colloquially known as the superbug, right? Mm-hmm. So ones that we don't see here very much, but unfortunately, they appear to be quite common in the hospitals over there. So that's one of the big lessons we've learned. I think Jason alluded to that. That's why we screen everybody coming through right now because, um, unfortunately, it's probably greater than 60-70% in some countries. Whereas here, just as a, for an example, it's probably less than 0.1% of the isolates, the bacteria that we see that would be classified as these symptoms. Are hospitals able to track how and when organisms are introduced into their facilities? How is this normally done? When you start looking, you, of course, find stuff. So one thing... One lesson we've learned is most hospitals do have transmission. There is, you know, uh, transmission going on in these hospitals. Uh, it's just sometimes it's happening at such a an uneven or sporadic rate that the human brain doesn't pick it up. So it might be once every four or five weeks and you have two of them and then nothing happens for three or four weeks and then you've one more and it just turns out you have an environmental contamination that's con- constantly infecting patients, but you just don't pick that up. And now with these new technologies, that's actually quite easy to find. And that's exactly what we've been uncovering. 
lots of transmissions. Another thing that we've seen is just one hospital will know that this person is colonized with something or infected. Usually it's, it's colonized. If you're infected with a bug, that information gets transferred to the next physicians who are taking care of you. But uh, we've seen lapses where we'll pick up that someone was colonized with something in one hospital and then they'll get to the next hospital and that flag, if you want to call it that, that awareness is gone because it's just colonizing them. And so then you, that medical staff doesn't know to use the, the right infection control precautions because they didn't know that the bug was, was colonizing. I think the, the military, like I said, our records are pretty good and you can follow people through the system and, and usually those flags um, will stay with the people. But again, if you're, you're transferred from one hospital to another and the receiving hospital doesn't know that information, then that, again, could lead to these to the outbreaks. And once they get into the hospital environment, sometimes it's really hard to get, to get rid of them. What is the role of surveillance in fighting antimicrobial resistance? You know, we know that these transmission events are happening because we're actually looking for them. So we have 15 of the biggest hospitals in the military healthcare system that we're collecting bacteria from and testing them and immediately checking to see if they're related to other ones we've gotten from those facilities or others. And so we know when there's possible transmission events and we can let the hospitals know that uh, most hospitals are not doing this. And certainly, you know, we are the largest healthcare network in the world that's, that's doing this kind of surveillance. So, and we don't, I mean, the military healthcare system is, and, you know, in terms of numbers, I'm not sure how it compares. It's obviously a much smaller population than civilian healthcare. Um, but if we're picking up enough of these even non-drug-resistant bacteria transmissions, you can only imagine what else is going on out there just because and people aren't looking for it. We've had, um, what, 34, we call them flash reports. So it's where we alert a hospital that a transmission has occurred and they're not aware of it. So we've had 34 of those this year already just from our network. So you can imagine what's going on in other places. We actually have a couple of civilian hospitals also sending us and now wanted to get involved. And so we're helping them out on a small basis whenever they think they have an outbreak. You know, we're also expanding out into the VA. So the VA hospital system is pretty big. So that's part of our network now. So it's 15 military hospitals plus one VA hospital. And obviously a shared patient population um, and now a VA and DOD patients are moving back and forth a lot more frequently than they did in the past to help uh, improve care. So the bugs can move with the people. What's something that keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? Multidrug resistance to me actually is just not that bad anymore because I've seen some stuff from overseas that makes, you know, the criteria that you use to define multidrug resistance is, is actually you're still able to use, a, you know, a few other antibiotics to treat them. I think what uh, I like the word extensively, XDR is kind of the word that I use a lot now. Um, so extensively drug resistant back. The amount of XDR overseas blows my mind sometimes. It's like literally above 80% of all the bacteria we see from Thailand, for example, are these extremely drug resistant organisms carrying the most potent antibiotic resistance genes that are all transferable. And it's like, if you look to the east, they're there. If you look to the west, they're there. If you look south, they're there. For the most part, it's just like you're surrounded by this sea of drug-resistant bacteria. And it's only a matter of time before they start appearing in your hospitals. And there's some areas of the world where they're, you know, like literally 78% of the bacteria are carrying these genes. So my biggest worry is that they'll eventually, if you don't have this surveillance up and running, if you're just like, 
treating it like it's you know not, nothing much because we don't have it here now just doesn't doesn't mean that in five or ten years time you know it won't be you know sweeping through your hospitals which it has done in a number of southern european countries the italians and greeks are having a hard time we see it in spain um, even germany france and denmark some of the northern european com- countries are having issues with it also so no matter how good your healthcare system is you know, these bugs are there, surround, ready to come in. Yeah, I think your repository that you have is very valuable. That repository that you've not only used for internal purposes, for screening, to identify new antimicrobials, optimizing your phage therapy library, but also other academics or other organizations yeah. can get access to those strains for their development of their research. We've actually put together panels of all the most, so we have an Acinetobacter panel, a Pseudomonas panel, a Klebsiella panel that are all available through BEI resources, which is a branch of ATCC. So basically it's a hundred Acinetobacter and it represents the genetic diversity of the entire species of Acinetobacter baumannii. So the most problematic clones all the way down to emerging ones that are found around the world. They're all available free of charge to anybody that wants them, industry, research, academia, whoever wants them, they can order them for free through BEI. That's a resource that we've been actively trying to um, get up and running for the last couple of years. People are listening and they want to know what they can do to combat multi-drug resistant bacteria, prevent it from occurring or spreading. So what actions do you feel we can all take to reduce the risk of drug resistant infections? Well, there's so much that people can do. First, I think we need to be raising awareness. So you need to be talking about, you know, superbugs. And this is a pandemic that's already here. Uh, Literally, I get calls every day from people with infections that used to be treatable that are not treatable anymore. Just talking about it with other people does something. Don't insist on getting an antibiotic from your doctor just for a cold. Using lower quality antibiotics or using antibiotics that you don't need, again, that's affecting the rest of the bacteria that may be just colonizing you at the time, but helping them evolve to be more resistant. I think we can all do what we can to, first of all, not get infections. Um, wash your hands. Um, when you get uh, antibiotics prescribed, take the full dose or the, the recommended dose um, to make sure that you eradicate uh, that bacteria. You've been listening to Superbugs and You, a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world on the threat of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. The podcast is produced by Elise Holmes, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, sidrap.umn.edu ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at sidrap underscore ASP and at AM Resistance.